On December 24th, 1968, there were three men who were aboard the Apollo 8 spacecraft. It had orbited Earth for nine, the ninth time out of ten total times that it had planned. Those men sent photographs and described their awe as they saw the moon so closely, and not to mention the amazing view of Earth. The Earth, as they saw it, was half in darkness and half in light. They could see the weather, weather patterns. They could see brilliant colors. Some of you remember these three men. They were named Frank Borman, Jim Lavelle, and Bill Anders. They were given an opportunity to send a live message from the spacecraft on that Christmas Eve, and it was estimated that more people around the world were listening to their voices than, in any other, than to any other man throughout human history. The message from outer space to earth began this way by Anders saying, for all the people back on earth, the crew of the Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. From there, Anders began reading from Genesis 1, 1 through 4. Laval was next and he read Genesis 1, 5 through 8. Borman was the last and he continued reading Genesis 1, 9 and 10. He read, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together the waters he called the sea, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And then Borman closed out his message this way Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. All of you on the good earth. Well, this morning we're coming together to consider another message. Another message from outer space, if you will. But this message is from infinitely further than the, what was it, 300,000 miles from which those astronauts spoke. This message that we're going to hear this morning is coming from directly from the throne room of Almighty God. And it is a message about His view of earth from heaven. But it is much more piercing and it is much more personal than simply describing the sights of a sphere that's hung in space. You see, Psalm 14, in Psalm 14, God looks into the human heart. In Psalm 14, God investigates the human heart and he sees men who try to live apart from God. And what God sees in Psalm 14 is not very good. It's not good at all. Psalm 14, our text of this morning, is written by David. David was the king in Israel. And he is specifically addressing this psalm, as he says at the very beginning, the title, To the Choir Master. It's a psalm of David. Now you just need to know that the psalms are a songbook. The psalms are God's songbook. And this psalm is written to the leader of the choir for gathered Israel. In other words, it is for the worship of Israel and it's intended to lead the hearts of the worshipers to truth for the sake of them drawing near to God. It's it's meant in a sense to usher those who are living in time and space to usher them to, to help to get their minds on that which are in he who is above time and space. Now, you'll probably immediately recognize the words of this psalm as it begins. Some call it the the April 1 psalm, the April Fool's Day psalm, right? The fool has said in his heart, 
There is no God. And in this psalm, we find a divine commentary. It's a divine commentary on human depravity. Now, I want you to understand this very clearly. This is something that is very, very important. And if you ignore this psalm, if you ignore the message of this psalm, you do so at your own peril. God has repeated the words of this psalm not once, not twice, but three times in three different places in the scriptures. Here in Psalm 14, in Psalm 53, and then again in Romans chapter 3. So I want you to understand that our Father, your Father, wants you to hear these words with great attention. He wants you to hear these words and to hear them well so that you can consider its message. And I want you to listen carefully this morning as I read the words of this 14th Psalm. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Now, Father, take your word and plant it deep in us. Bring about your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. These are the words of the Lord here in Psalm 14. Now, I want to help you to understand Psalm 14 this morning. And in order to do that, I simply want to point out to you three parts of this psalm or three components that make up this psalm. You see, this psalm is all about not only giving us insight into the human heart as as it is apart from God. But this psalm is causing us to see the essence of true worship. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to discover the three components to this psalm, which will not only give us insight into the human heart as it is apart from God, but will cause us to see the essence of true worship. What are those three components? Well, divided this way. Starts off, divide them with verse 1 and then... 2 through 6 is the second, and then verse 7 is the third. In verse 1, we'll notice that there is the declaration of the fool. You see it very clearly there, the declaration of the fool. And then in verses 2 through 6, we'll notice the investigation of God. Really clear again, very, very plain. And then in verse 7, the supplication of the righteous. So these three components make up this psalm, declaration, investigation, and supplication. Let's look together again at verse 1 at the declaration of the fool. Now, our mind is immediately catapulted to think about, to consider this very first character in this psalm. He's called the fool, the naval. That's the word that refers to one who has no sense of wisdom whatsoever. The word is actually an adjective. It's a descriptive word. It is describing one who is 
morally dense. The fool, that's what a fool is, a morally dense person. This person is happily bereft of any moral wisdom. Now, listen, when you talk about the fool, when the fool is spoken of here in the scriptures, it is not an immediate reflection on one's intellect, but it is a reflection on one's morality or lack thereof. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And that's really what David wants to underline in this psalm. Remember, he's writing this, he's giving it to the choir master for gathered Israel. So I imagine that the choir would be singing this as Israel is gathering for what purpose? I believe it is to underline, first of all, the purpose that the gathered worshipers would remember these things about the fool so that they don't go in the same way. David wants the gathered worshipers in Israel to understand the fool and the way of a fool so that they can avoid it. But more than that, I think David is calling attention to what fools do and what fools say in terms of their character so that they would understand, the gathered worshipers would understand, maybe maybe there was a particular point of application in their lives. In other words, maybe he's reflecting on those fools who have chosen to do harm to God's people. Maybe right now in Israel there was something going on that was causing the gathered worshipers to be a bit fearful, to be a bit wondering, because the fools were acting foolishly in Israel, and they were trying to bring harm to God's people. And Psalm 14, my friends, is giving the gathered worshipers an eternal perspective on the things that are happening in their lives at that very moment. And that's what he's doing for us. He's giving an eternal perspective on these things. He wants people to understand God's perspective on these fools. Now, I realize that you might be wondering about all of the foolishness that is taking place all around us everywhere. I mean, it's just being paraded, isn't it? We live in a day and age where foolishness and fools are paraded around and absolutely celebrated. How would we summarize fools and foolishness in our days? I don't know that there's a fitting summary of that which is accepted and celebrated in our society today. But just imagine the voices that you've heard just this week. You've heard the echo of the fool who contends that sexual relations outside of God-ordained marriage is actually good. You've heard the insanity of thinking that a man can become a woman. to, to, To the absurdity of celebrating sodomy. And then listen, foolishness descends to the dark depths even of an insistence that babies ought to be slaughtered in the womb. This is a day and age of fools and foolishness. And I find what we need is some divine perspective. Some divine perspective on these kinds of things. Why? Well, so that one, we'll keep away from fools and foolishness. We need to learn to keep away from fools and their foolish ways. But we also need this divine perspective so that you and I don't lose heart in these days. So we find God's perspective by revealing the declaration of the fool. What does the fool say? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They are abominable. They do abominable 
yeah, abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Look at the declaration of this fool. And you see how he makes this declaration internally. Do you see how that's emphasized? The fool has said where? In his heart. That's the essence of the fool. It's to say in the heart there is no God. That is to live as if God does not exist. Friends, this is a matter of the heart. This declaration comes from the heart. It is a matter of the nature of man. In other words, no matter what they say or do on the outside, the fool is saying in his heart there is no God. You know this. There are many people who say one thing with their mouth and another thing in their heart. This is referring to the inner part of man, the the will, the mind, the affections. It's what we call being a practical atheist. It's one thing to say with the mouth, and it's another thing to say something opposite with the will. And we've encountered this all the time. I mean, in pastoral ministry over the last nearly 30 years, I've heard people say, oh, yes, I believe in God. Yet the denial of that same reality in the life that is lived, which is exactly Paul's point in Romans chapter 1. Even though they know God, they what? They do not worship him as God. And that's an accurate description for foolishness. The kind of living that is foolish living is the living that knows something but denies it internally. To which someone might say, I don't like that. I don't like you calling me a fool. To which I would respond with two things. One... I'm not calling you a fool. God is. I'm not the editor. I'm just the paper boy. But second, what I would respond is this. When a fool, when a person says, I don't like that, and I'm not going to change no matter what you say, that is exactly fitting a fool. Because the Bible says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 18.2. Proverbs 1.7, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 12.15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. What is the declaration of a fool? What does a, dec- what does a fool say? He says internally in his heart, you're not going to change my mind. He sets his heart, sets his neck, stiffens his neck against God. There is no God. Not only does he make that declaration internally but notice secondly he makes that declaration intentionally see this the fool says in his heart and then you see this phrase there is no god now that phrase is sort of uh, amended by the editors to help us to help to flow a little bit more for translation's sake but what it says literally in the hebrew is this the fool says in his heart no god that's all it says no god the fool denies god In spite of what he actually knows. He knows that God exists, but he resolutely sets his face and stiffens his neck and says, no God. It's exactly what the psalmist said in in, in Psalm 10.4. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. This is the intentional denial of God. One man said it's like this. Being at the dinner table and somebody passing the potatoes or the Brussels sprouts and you wrinkling your nose, turning your face and saying, no potatoes. 
or no Brussels sprouts. That's what the fool does when it comes not just to the existence of God, but even more so to his authority over life. He closes his eyes, wrinkles his nose, turns his head, stiffens his neck, and says, no, God. That's what God sees from heaven. This is God's view from heaven, God's view of earth from heaven as he looks in and peers into the heart of man and he peers into the heart of this fool who is making this declaration internally and intentionally, but not only that, he's making this declaration immorally. Let me just look at the text. He says in verse 1, they are corrupt. You see this immoral, the immoral nature coming out here from the heart. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. This is the condition of the human heart apart from God. It is immoral in nature. The human heart that denies God is the foundation for all corruption. That was emphasized in Genesis chapter 6. You remember? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The psalmist in emphasizing the immoral nature of this corruption is emphasizing the activity of the one who is described as a fool. They are corrupt. That word corrupt is the word for destroyed. They are morally destroyed. Which is why they do abominable things. You know what abominable things are, right? You, you've heard of the abominable snowman, right? The, the hated one. The one that everyone despises. God says they do abominable works. Now I realize in our day and age that we don't like to speak about God as abominating anything or anyone. But just listen. Psalm 5, 6. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Psalm seven eleven. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm eleven five. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. This fool is corrupt. He is morally destroyed, and that's the basis for him doing hated things, things that are hated by God. That's the reality of this. Fool, the declaration of the fool. But most of this psalm is made up in verses 2 through 6, the second part, the second component, and that shows us the investigation of God. You see how, it, how it's involving here God's investigation. God, the Lord, Yahweh, looks down from heaven. He condescends in order to see exactly what goes on in this song. Now remember, this song, this psalm is written by David for the gathered worshipers in Israel. And one of the things that he wants those gathered worshipers to know is that God is not unseeing. God is not ignorant. God is not uninvolved in the matter. But rather, he condescends to look with divine eyes on the condition of the human heart. He's not going to miss anything. He sees exactly what's going on. He wants the worshipers to know, you see all this foolishness going around? Yes, well, you're not the only one who sees this foolishness. God sees it, and he has something to say about it. What does God see? What does the investigation of God turn up? Well, first of all, it turns up depravity. 
Verse 3, he sees their depravity. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. They have turned aside. That is, they have followed their own ways. Like sheep, Isaiah says, we all have gone astray. Right? What does God see? God sees the depravity of human hearts such that they have all turned aside. And together they've become corrupt. Now, the Apostle Paul uses this verse in his treatment of the, to- of the doctrine of total depravity in Romans chapter 3. And he uses a word there for corrupt that speaks of spoiled milk. Spoiled milk. Now, question. How much milk needs to be spoiled before it's spoiled? So if you got out this morning and you got your, your Captain Crunch in a bowl and you poured it there... And you got the milk and you poured it and it came out in a clump, a green, hairy clump. Would you just say, oh, that part is spoiled like you do with a piece of bread when there's a little bit of mold on it? Or maybe some of you do. I mean, it's penicillin, right? That's what helps. Well, would you just take that green, hairy clump out and you go on to use the rest of the milk? No, you would say together that milk is is useless. It is corrupt. I don't want it. And listen, Captain Crunch can make a lot of things good, but it can't make spoiled milk unspoiled. And that's the word that he uses here for corrupt. That's the idea of this depravity. What does God see when he investigates the human heart? He sees this universally true uh, uh, reality of the depravity of human men, those who live in ungodliness, those who live as if God does not exist. He sees depravity. But not only does he see depravity, look in verse 4. He sees defiance. He sees defiance. See this question? It's almost as if God is shocked as he's making this investigation. Have they no knowledge? Are they ignorant? All the evildoers, what are they doing? They're eating up my people as they eat bread and they do not call upon the Lord. These people are so, are are these people just mentally incapacitated? Can they not be held liable? No, God says they are absolutely held liable. They are absolutely responsible. Remember, this psalm is meant for the gathered worshipers to consider those who are even at that moment exalting themselves against God. They're exalting themselves against God's majesty and God's holiness. How so? They are opposing all that is good and all that is right and all that is upright in God's sight. They're seeking, he says, to consume God's people. And that's really the issue here for David. Something is going on in Israel where there are enemies who are coming against the people and they're seeking to afflict the people of God. They want to oppose God wherever they can. They want to oppose God's people wherever they can. And the picture is very vivid. They eat up my people as they eat bread. How do you eat bread? You you tear it up. And bread, especially in this culture, is always on the menu. There's never a time where it's not fitting time to have bread with your meal. And that's what he says about these ungodly, unrighteous fools. They are eating up my people like they eat up bread. That's their only reason for existence. And I think that's what calls David to take up his pen. It certainly fits the narrative of the previous Psalms. In fact, if you look at the previous Psalms, you will find that there is an enemy, according to chapter 9, verse 6. 
who has refused to repent, according to chapter 7, verse 12, who loves arrogant wickedness and deceit, according to chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, who causes the righteous to weep, chapter 6, verse 8, and pursues them in order to destroy them, chapter 7, verse 1. They plunder the poor, chapter 12, verse 5, and afflict the needy, chapter 12, verse 5. They are prowling around, exalting everything that is vile, chapter 12, verse 8, which makes David, in in, in chapter 13, verse 1, cry out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? These fools are defiant. They want to oppose God wherever they can. And God wants the worshipers to know who are gathered together. He wants them to know that he sees this defiance. It has not missed his investigation. But not only that. He sees their depravity. And he sees their defiance. But do you notice in verse 5? He also sees their dread. Look at it. There they are in great terror. Why are they in great terror? For God is with the generation of the righteous. Not only all of these things, but he sees that these wicked God deniers are actually in terror. He's informing the worshipers, don't worry, because they are in dread. God is looking at the heart and what he sees is that they see that God sees. They all know intuitively that God is with his people and that he will act. You see, that's the thing with fools. Fools are morally bereft, but they're not dumb. They see that God sees. They know that God is with the righteous. And remember what happened with the wicked and foolish Egyptians. They pursued God's people all the way to the Red Sea. And even as Moses lifted up his arms and the, and the Red Sea parted and the people of Israel walked through on dry ground, they saw the, 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 the distinction that God made between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And when it came time for them to pursue Israel, they had the opportunity to turn back, to not go. But the Bible says that God hardened their hearts And they went through, and though the people of Israel went through on dry ground, that was not the case with the people of Egypt. And God frustrated their plans and made the wheels of the chariots fall off, and people got stuck in the mud just in time for him to release the walls of water. And their hardened hearts waited to be consumed with the raging waters of God's wrath. The imprecatory prayer in Psalm 920 says, Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. And God says, I know this about the fool. They are in dread. They are in terror because they know that they're fighting against God, but their hearts are hardened. They're in this fixed position of opposition to God. What does this investigation show? It shows their depravity. It shows their defiance. It shows their dread. One last thing in verse 6, it shows their disdain. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. He's speaking to the fool. You would do this. 
Even so, even though they're in dread, they continue to treat the righteous with disdain. You see what they do? They despise the plans. That word plans is literally the word for message or counsel of the poor. They just can't stand that those whom they oppress take shelter in the truth of God. And they, the fool, disdains that. They disdain the refuge of the righteous, and the refuge of the righteous is God himself. Make no mistake that what we see going on in our world today is not simply a cultural war. It is a spiritual battle. It is a battle against everything that is good and right. It is a battle against God himself. And you see, that's what this is. All of the wickedness and the vile foolishness that is paraded and celebrated around us, all of the hatred that is spewed on everything that is good is actually disdain for God. It is disdain for Yahweh. It is turning the nose to the refuge of Yahweh. Anything that's good and anything that's admirable and anything that's honorable and godly in this day is held in disdain and increasingly will be the subject of the attack of the godless. That's stunning to me that David would pen this psalm and use it to be sung by the choir for the gathered worshipers. This is not exactly the stuff of great uh, hymnody. This is not the stuff that makes you leave the, the service in awe and wonder as you've had uh, time to, do, to, to think about the declaration of the fool and the investigation of God. At least not yet. Praise the Lord that he doesn't stop with verse 6. That he goes to verse 7 as well. From the declaration of the fool to the investigation of God. And then he finishes with the supplication of the righteous. All of this psalm is leading to this conclusion. All six verses are pointing to verse 7. We have most often made verse 1 the focus of the psalm. But it is indeed not the focus of the psalm. This psalm is focused on verse 7. The conclusion is really what this psalm is all about. This is the song in Israel is all about verse 7. Look at it again. Oh, that salvation. You see the supplication? Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is why David wrote the psalm. He wrote the psalm to get to this prayer. This prayer of the gathered worshipers. It's why we're studying it today. Everything points to this grand conclusion in verse 7, which is what? It is this supplication, this petition, this prayer in which this psalm culminates. What is he praying for? What is, he, is, what is, what is the supplication about? Well, notice it is about, first of all, redemption. This is amazing to me. If I were just sitting here with a Hebrew text and trying to translate this verse, I would translate the first words of this verse this way. Give Yeshua. You, you hear that word, right? Yeshua. Joshua. It, it's a word that means God's salvation. Give God salvation right now. Which is why the angel told a carpenter named Joseph in Matthew 121, he said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This 
Joseph was the one who took Mary as his wife, but did not know her until she gave birth to her firstborn son. And when she did, he called his name Jesus, Matthew 1.25. Jesus, which is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew, Yeshua. I don't think that it's a stretch to say that the prayer of Psalm, uh, Psalm 14 is a prayer for God to send Jesus. It's a prayer for God to send his salvation. It is a prayer for redemption. The prayer of the afflicted in this psalm is not a prayer of reparation. It's a prayer of redemption. Send Jesus. God, send your salvation now. It's not only a supplication for redemption, but you notice it is a supplication for return. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. The the only place from which salvation can come is from Zion. It can only come through God's chosen people. It can only come uh, through Israel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first. But praise God also. To the Greek. It's not only a prayer for redemption. It's a prayer for return or for restoration. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Now, in the sphere of this psalm, the psalmist was looking for the coming of Messiah. He was looking for God's salvation, for Yeshua, the Messiah, the the, the anointed one. God's salvation. In, In that coming for which the psalmist was longing, he could only see the day of the Lord's return. And he saw that when the day that that Yeshua comes, when the day when God's Messiah comes, when the day when God's salvation or God's redemption comes, that the Lord would then return and restore or reverse the captivity of his people. That was, remember how the disciples kept asking Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They had no idea, and the psalmist had no idea that there would be not just one coming of the Messiah, but a second coming of the Messiah. Now, in this instance, perhaps David is away from Jerusalem. Maybe it's during Absalom's rebellion, and he was looking toward the day when God would make everything right, when God will restore, when God will take me back to Jerusalem, when God will send his Messiah, when God will send his salvation. But for us, we look back on the first coming of God's salvation and God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look back on that, but, but friends, we are also looking to the great day of his glorious appearing when he comes to save his people, to restore the fortunes of his people, to, to, to free them from their captivity, to bring them out of their bondage. In what way? By catching them away and drawing them unto himself as Jesus comes to catch away his bride to himself. And that's what this psalm is all about. It's all about redemption and restoration. Here's what wicked people are doing. God says, don't lose sight of redemption, of restoration, and of rejoicing. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. 
David did not want the worshipers to be in a state of misery and discouragement and depression because of the fools and their foolishness being paraded and celebrated in Israel. He did not want those worshipers to be in a state of misery, to be in a state of discouragement, to be in a state of depression. He wanted them, even though they were in the midst of the wicked, to look forward to the fulfillment of God's promise and to be filled with joy. You see, even though fools say, no God, he is not at all limited by their rebellion. He will certainly fulfill everything that he has said, and he will surely bring his kingdom Though the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So friends, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. You see, this psalm is telling us that genuine worship revolves around the promise of God to bring his salvation through the only means that he says possible, and that is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That true worship revolves around Uh, The redemption of Christ, true worship revolves around the restoration, the kingdom, and rejoicing in that. True worship is not at all hindered by the foolishness of fools, though they abound. You see these components of the psalm? Declaration, investigation, and supplication. All with the intent of showing us, driving us, Ushering us to being the valet. The, the, the Psalm 14 is our valet leading us to true worship. I wonder how this psalm hits you today. Maybe you can say, you know, I've been convicted of either being a fool or of acting foolishly. Maybe, maybe there's something in your heart that is, as God was giving his view of earth from heaven, maybe, maybe something grabbed your heart and you were convicted of foolishness in your own life. How are you going to respond to that if that's you? I was reading this week in the book of Proverbs and I came to Proverbs chapter 5 in which there is this serious warning against adultery. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 7 
We read, And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, How I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ears to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. As I read that, I thought about this, this driving us to true worship here in Psalm 14 and maybe being convicted of of being a fool or of foolishness today, I really hope that you do not come to the end of your life with this kind of regret. Saying, oh, I remember when I was instructed about the fool and foolishness. I remember when God revealed to me how he sees fools and how he sees foolishness. And you did not repent. So I want to say to you today, if you are convicted in any way in your life of an issue of foolishness or certainly of being a fool, I want to plead with you today to turn and repent now. Do not allow yourself to come to that last day when you are in regret. I just have in my notes here, remember Cliff. And I think I've told you probably often, the story of Cliff. A number of years ago, I got called to go and visit this man named Cliff. He was in the hospital and just found out that he had cancer. And it was so bad that the cancer had actually paralyzed him. He couldn't move. And I went into the hospital room there, in York Hospital, in the intensive care unit. As soon as I walked in, Cliff looked over at me and he said, I don't like preachers very much. And I said, well, nice to see you. How are you doing as well, you know? I said, oh, okay, well, I'm just here. And I tried to make some small talk, which didn't go that very far. And I just said, Cliff, can I pray with you? And I I don't remember if he said yes or no, but I, I just uttered a quick word of prayer and then I left. It was clear that Cliff didn't want me to be there. Maybe three days later, his son-in-law called me and said, Cliff has been moved. He's moved to a rehab hospital. He really wants you to come see him. And I said, I I, I don't think he wants me to come see him. I think you want me to go see him. He said, no, Cliff asked specifically for you by name. And this time when I went in to visit Cliff, before I even got into the doorway of his room, he looked at me and tears filled his eyes and he began sobbing. And he said, I need to be saved. I need to be saved. And something happened that day in that room there. Cliff bowed his heart and bowed his head and received the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. And I am telling you, instantaneously, it doesn't happen like this for everyone all the time, but instantaneously he went from sorrow to joy, from being a stodgy old mule to being a child of God. And he began to... He, he was able to come home, and though he couldn't, still couldn't move, still couldn't walk, he began to eat up the word. He began to pray, and there was such joy in his heart. Something happened, and I keep thinking, oh, I don't want any of you to be cliff number one. When you come to the end of your life, and you look, and you, you want nothing, you stiffen your neck to the things of God. I want you to be cliff number two, where your heart is soft. And you don't come to the end with regret. 
I wonder if you've been convicted. I wonder if you're you're comforted because you see what you've been saved from, brothers and sisters. I mean, it's enough that we see all of this foolishness going on around us and parade, but realize we're not in that parade. Praise the Lord. I'd be there if it weren't for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, bro- and, and brothers and sisters, number three, just as you think about this, I'm going to remind you, there's a day coming. Our society wants to talk about inequity and injustice and reparations and all these kinds of, this kind of nonsense. What God says we need is not reparations. What God says we need is a new day. And that new day will be ushered in when the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes again and all will be well. Let's pray. Thank you for this psalm, O Lord, our God. And how could anyone leave here today without being cut to the heart in some aspect of foolishness in their life? How could anyone leave here today without being heartened with the reality of of redemption in Christ and restoration, the future kingdom? We humble ourselves before you and give you thanks and pray that this word would not be heard with idleness, but with the power of the Holy Spirit attending to our lives and our hearts. And that if there are any here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day for them where they would turn to Christ as their only salvation. That you would be the the joy of every Christian's heart today. That though this world seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We can give you thanks. In Jesus' name and together, all God's people said, Amen. Would you stand together?